Hey guys, real quick, before we get started, I have a small request. If you've been blessed by our content and you like this show, would you take just a brief moment and leave us a five-star review? This is quite possibly the most effective thing that you can do to ensure that this content gets out to as many people as possible. Thanks. Jesus said, man cannot live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You're listening to Daily Truth. And so how did Abraham theologically frame this seemingly contradictive situation in his mind? On the one hand, God has clearly called me to sacrifice my son. On the other, God promised me and made a covenant with me. Genesis 15 and 16, preceding Genesis 21, and preceding the event of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. God didn't just promise. He covenanted with me. He cut covenant with me that he would give me a great many descendants and that he would do it specifically through this boy. And now he's telling me to kill. Notice what Abraham doesn't do to rationalize this contradiction. He doesn't say, God said one thing, but now he's saying another. Now let me pause for a moment. That is, in a nutshell, Islam. Do you know that? The Quran has such contradictions that they can't even begin to attempt to reconcile them because it's not inspired by God. It's written by Muhammad. And there are actually in the Quran certain Christian heresies that you can date to the life of Muhammad. You can tell he's the guy who wrote it without any divine inspiration. He may have had inspiration, but not divine inspiration, perhaps demonic inspiration. But he wrote it, and he wrote it in a specific time when there were certain Christian heresies circulated. Like you can find in the Quran where, where this story is retold of Jesus, who, according to Islam, is a prophet, the prophet even. But, but he, there was a moment where he was still in the womb, right? When, when Mary and Joseph are making their way to Bethlehem, and Mary is tired from the pregnancy and weak, and Jesus speaks from the womb to a tree that would bend over so that they can reach the fruit and sustain Mary's health. That was a Christian heresy that was circulating around at the time, and Muhammad picked it up, and it finds its way into the Quran. But, but what people will tell you, scholars, those who are actually Muslim, And imams, they would say, the way to read the Quran is that the latter verses trump the former. Now, here's the sad thing. That's that's the way that probably 80% of evangelical Christians read the Bible. They read it like Muslims read the Quran. The latter trumps the former. You got to sometimes just unhitch from that Old Testament. You know what I mean? Andy Stanley style. Unhitch. It's just just a burden. It's weighing us down. That's the bad God, and, and, and now we've got the good God. And, and these things trump those things. And no, no, the beauty of the scripture, it, it's written over 1,500 years. Not a few months by one guy, Muhammad. No, it's, it's written by, by 40 human authors over 1,500 years without a single contradiction. Not one. And anytime there appears to be a contradiction with true and careful theological rigor and study, we can find that the Bible is self-affirming, self-attesting, and that the Bible is cohesive, and that there is a pure and clear continuity from Genesis all the way to Revelation. 
There is no other piece of literature like the Bible. Nothing. Nothing. Even in the 1689 Second London Confession of Faith, which is what our church, that's our official confession of faith, one of the things that the confession says in regards to the doctrine of the Word, or you might say the reliability, the credibility of the Bible, how do we know that the Word of God is in fact the Word of God? One of the things that the 1689 says is it says you can tell by the majesty of its literary style. You could just read it and say, this is better than any other book. It's genius. And not just genius. It's poetic. It's beautiful. It's artistic. There's nothing like this. Nothing. And then the 1689, for the record, goes on to say that ultimately, it's the inward witness of the Holy Spirit that bears testimony that this is, in fact, the Word of God. That's the truest sign. How do we know that the Bible is the Bible? Because the Bible says so. Is that circular logic? Uh, I don't think so. Maybe a little. But I'm a presuppositionalist. And what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to rest the Bible and its authority on top of the foundation of a higher authority, namely logic or evidence or Josephus as a Jewish historian. No, 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 no. No, the only reason I can argue with someone as a Christian and, and, and actually make persuasive arguments and appeal to their logic is because the Bible tells me that we didn't just evolve from primates, but that that person was actually created in the image of God and has been given rationality and reason and logic. So I'll appeal to logic as an authority, but notice what the presuppositionalist does is it's not that he only appeals to biblical authority. He appeals to other authorities, but as lesser authorities that are only authorities because the highest authority, the foundational authority, the Bible testifies to them. The Bible testifies to them. So, in the case of Abraham, he's receiving two commandments seemingly in contradiction. Through Isaac will come the promise Kill Isaac. That's not helpful. What? Through Isaac, you will have many descendants. Okay, he's not married yet. He has no kids. Kill Isaac. That's one of these things. It's not like the other. Like, that's not, that's not making sense. But notice what Abraham doesn't do. Abraham doesn't do the Muslim thing. And he doesn't do the Christian equivalent of the Muslim thing. We could call it the Andy Stanley thing unhitch the Old Testament. No, no, he doesn't do either. He doesn't say, hey, this latter command, whatever command comes most recently, whatever command comes last, it, it, it's the trumping command. It's the higher command. And God, you know, he often contradicts himself. You know, I mean, he's, he's kind of, he's got multiple different personalities, you know, and a, I mean, there are three persons in the Trinity and each of them may have their own will. No, all that is heresy. No, 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 no. Abraham doesn't do that. Abraham doesn't invoke heresy to make sense of the commandment of God. He doesn't say this latter commandment of God, it does in fact contradict the former commandment of God, and therefore it trumps that. God said one thing and God must have changed his mind. No, God is not a man that he should change his mind. God is not a man that he should lie. He is not a man that he should repent. God is immutable. Behold, I the Lord changeth not so that you the sons of Jacob are not consumed. God never contradicts, and he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Abraham knew that. He knew that. So look at how Abraham reasoned. He doesn't say, I guess God changed his mind. I guess God made a covenant with me, but God's going to break that covenant. 
No, Abraham, instead, he reasons like this. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That's how Abraham makes sense of God's commandment to offer his son. He does not say, this is the latest commandment. It does contradict the former commandment. I guess God changed his mind. I guess God is self-contradicting. I guess there is mutability within the Godhead. Shifting in the Godhead. No, he says, I know how God could make sense of this. God raises the dead. And why would Abraham, of all men on the earth at the time, why would Abraham have, perhaps we could call it, a higher propensity for believing that God, in fact, raises the dead? John Gill says it like this. Abraham knew that he had received Isaac from the dead. He sprung from his own dead body and out of Sarah's dead womb. As he believed the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, he might believe that God would raise his son from the dead rather than that his promise should fail. Sooner that God would raise my son from the dead than that God would break his promises. He doesn't fail. He doesn't change. He doesn't lie. He doesn't repent. He is not a man like me. He's not like me. He is God. And Abraham, without going to seminary or any of those things, I'm sure Abraham in heaven now has better theology than he did here on earth in his lifetime. But even in his lifetime, even being 1,500 years prior to the cross of Jesus Christ in the Incarnation, Abraham, even then, as the man of faith, he knew a few things about God. And one of the things that he knew about God is that he's faithful and that he never changes and that he is the resurrection and the life. Houston, we have a problem. I repeat, we have a problem. Our conference is about to sell out. I mean, about to sell out. We probably have about mm, 75 to 100 seats left. Our venue holds about 525 to 550 seats, and we currently have 450 people who are registered for this conference. The excitement is tangible. A lot of people registered because they wanted to hit the early bird rate. We're now at our normal rate, $130 for an adult, $50 for a kid who's 11 to 17 years old, and kids 10 and under get in free. You can bring the whole family, but the problem is not that we're going to raise the rate again. The problem is we're going to run out of tickets, and we're going to run out pretty fast. Again, we've got about 100 seats or less. 450 people, six months out, are already registered for this conference. We don't want you to miss it. So to ensure that you get to make it to this conference, you need to register not a month from now, not a week from now, not tomorrow, but today. You want to be there for the Theonomy and Postmillennialism Conference, May 5th, 6th, and 7th, with James White, Joe Boot, Gary DeMar, Dale Partridge, and yours truly, Joel Webbin. Go to rightresponseconference.com. Again, that's rightresponseconference.com. It will sell out very soon.